0: Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck.
1: Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in today. We have got a really important topic today, and and that is an EPA-proposed new rule. That would allow carbon capture and sequestration and hydrogen co-firing in communities that are already overburdened by environmental pollutants associated with power plants. And so we have got an all-star panel of guests lined up today who are going to help us unpack this notion of whether or not this policy, as it's currently proposed, is just and fair or is it racist and so we are going to be talking about all the different components of this proposal by the epa how it's going to impact human beings on the ground and what should be done to make this this rule if it's even going to go forward a more just and more equitable um Uh, rule and and public policy. Our first guest today is Dr. Nikki Sheets. He's the director of the Center for the Urban Environment of the John S. Watson Institute for Urban Policy and Research at Keene University. Dr. Sheets, we are so glad to have you on the show. Um, I would love to have you start by having our listeners help them understand how EJ communities are currently impacted by power plants.
2: Well, thanks for having us on the show, uh, Jill. I also want to point out that I'm a member of the New Jersey Environmental Justice Alliance. uh, But let me start out by actually defining an environmental justice community before saying how they are affected by power plants. Uh, We define EJ communities by uh, by saying they are communities with low income and communities of color. And unfortunately, in our society, these communities suffer from vulnerabilities that um, are rooted in race and income, and one of these uh, vulnerabilities is health disparities. Uh, And to bring power plants into this, uh, um, uh, often these communities not only suffer from vulnerabilities connected to race and income, but they also suffer from disproportionate pollution loads. And you hear us refer to this um, um, typically as cumulative impacts. And cumulative impacts not only refers to elevated levels of pollution in environmental justice communities and other communities, uh, but also to the health and impacts not only caused by the elevated level, levels of pollution as multiple pollutants interact with each other, but also as they, as they interact with social vulnerabilities that I've, uh, I've talked about a little bit already. And the role that power plants play in this, that uh, communities that are located near power plants and and There are disproportionate numbers of people of color and low-income folks located near power plants. Power plants, unfortunately, contribute to disproportionate pollution loads that may occur in these communities. Because we often hear about power plants contributing to climate change by um, emitting carbon dioxide, uh, uh, which is a greenhouse gas. But along with the carbon dioxide, they admit other air pollutants, which in vernacular climate change mitigation policy are called greenhouse gas coal pollutants. Mm-hmm. And these other uh, air pollutants have detrimental local health impacts. We're talking about pollutants like fine particulate matter, nitrogen oxides and sulfur dioxide. So these other coal pollutants contribute to the disproportionate pollution loads we often find in EJ communities and therefore um, contribute to health disparities um that we find in these communities, so for for years, the EJ community has been advocating that climate change mitigation policy should not only fight climate change and we're into fighting climate change we'll probably discuss later, mm-hmm. but it should also ensure reductions of these locally harmful coal pollutants, especially if they are located near or in environmental justice communities so when we see climate change mitigation policy we we look at it as an opportunity to improve the health of environmental justice communities in addition to fighting climate change
1: absolutely thank you so much for that dr sheets our next guest is dr anna baptista she's an associate professor Professor of Environmental Policy and Sustainability Management and co-director of the Tishman Environment and Design Center. Dr. Baptista, we're so excited to have you on the show. Help us understand what carbon capture and sequestration and hydrogen co-firing are. I, I want our listeners to have a fundamental understanding of the technologies that are under consideration by the EPA.
3: Yes, thank you for for having us. I, I have the uh <laughs> the job of uh, of explaining some very complex um technology. So I'm going to do my best to put it in uh, very simple terms um with the understanding that you know, there's a lot more chemistry and technology behind wh- what I'm putting in a very simplistic way, but um Carbon capture and sequestration, or otherwise known as CCS, um, is a process. It's it's an industrial process for removing um, CO2 from large stationary sources like a power plant or a cement plant, uh, some kind of an industrial plant. And uh, the way that carbon is captured is um, typically at a power plant, say a natural gas plant, um, the system to remove carbon dioxide from that plant um, requires energy, right? So at a natural Mm -hmm. gas plant, for example, you'll need 30 to 40% of the capacity of that plant to run the capture system. So it's a a big big system. And you can capture the CO2 at different parts um, of the combustion process. Uh, The most typical way or place that CO2 is captured in a power plant right now is what they call post-combustion. So it's once the fuel has been combusted, uh, the capture system tries to capture the CO2 molecules that are in the flue gas that are coming out of the stack before it enters the atmosphere. So they try to Mm -hmm. capture it at that point. And the way they capture it is um, to chemically remove the CO2. So they use uh, chemicals called amines, and there's lots of different types of chemicals that you could use. and you really you try to transform the CO2 uh, using a chemical reaction um, to capture the CO2 out of the flue gas and scrub it out of the flue gas turn it into a liquid and then compress it so that you can transport it Um, and it's typically transported via pipeline
2: Mm -hmm. uh,
3: sometimes via ships and uh, that liquid CO2 that compressed CO2 Um, The storage part of that or the sequestration part of that um, is usually pumped um, into uh, old oil and gas wells. So uh, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's used to pump more oil and gas out from underneath um, existing oil and gas wells, uh, or it can be pumped into geologic formations or aquifers for permanent storage. So that's CCS in a very Mm -hmm. simplified nutshell. (laughs) Um, Well, that was great,
1: though. That was great. (laughs) Um, You know, and and maybe we'll come back to hydrogen co-firing in just a sec. But I want to bring on uh, Ms. Lopez Nunez. Maria is the deputy director of advocacy and organizing with the Ironbound Community Corporation. Maria, I am so glad to have you on the show. Tell us, you know, for EJ communities near current fossil fuel fired plants and other power plants, How will allowing CCS and hydrogen co-firing, how will that increase the burden on these communities?
4: Yeah, I think you know, when we're talking about increasing burden in our communities, one thing for me is always to step back. I'm from the neighborhood of the Ironbound, right? It's a neighborhood of Newark. It's only about four square miles. Um, In these four square miles, we already have three existing fossil fuel power plants, and we're actually fighting a fourth power plant, you know? So we would have one power plant per square mile. And that's not the only things in our neighborhood, right? So there's garbage incinerator, the largest one in the state. There's a sewage waste treatment facility. And we're also surrounded by what's the longest Superfund site in the country, uh, the Passaic River that's been heavily contaminated. So we're talking about the cumulative impacts, right? Not just one problem, but many problems in a concentrated area. Um, So when I think about CCS, I think it's going to create, first off, a demand for more energy, because it doesn't Mm -hmm. happen. It's not energy neutral, you need a Mm -hmm. lot of energy. And I've seen the same argument with like, Everyone trying to switch to electric cars. I'm like, until we actually have a clean grid, we're just displacing emissions, moving them from over here to over here. And now, you know, if we're going to say we need CCS to capture the carbon, well, we're going to have to increase the production of energy. So it's not just um, for us. It's not just about carbon. It's about the other things that come out of those smokestacks. right? Right. Mercury arsenic lead NOx those things have a real health impact in our neighborhoods because racist policy and racist land use has led to predominantly communities of color and low income communities being the ones infected by fossil fuel power plants in this country and beyond the use of CCS which i still consider experimental technology hasn't been proven without a beyond a reasonable doubt to us mm-hmm. and our community I I consider that of course it it's going to be dangerous in our communities because there's a lot of unknowns. We saw you know a pipe, uh, one of the CO two pipes. Uh, leak and a whole town have to be evacuated 45 people sent to the hospital right from a co2 leak leakage so i think there's a lot of unforeseen things and in communities like mine we're really used to that unforeseen negative impacts that if it was in someone else's community we wouldn't even be having the discussion until we had proved safety until we have proved that it works and we had proved that it's not going to contribute to other public health hazards
1: well said, Maria, thank you so much for that. I wanna bring on Ansha Zaman, the Federal Policy Director for the Center for Earth, Energy and Democracy. Ansha, welcome to the show. Tell us who benefits and who is harmed by CCS and hydrogen co-firing.
5: Thank you, Joel, um, for having us on the show and, and for that question. I, I really appreciate the way you framed this question in terms of harms and, and benefits. Uh, just to go back a little, as you know, as Dr. Sheets mentioned, and um, as Maria mentioned, the, the harms and burdens of the par sector from burning fossil fuels, from extraction of our natural resources, have been historically borne by EJ communities. That is, indigenous communities, communities of color, and 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 low income communities. And this is definitely true in in Minnesota and Minneapolis where I'm based and where um, seed Center for Earth Energy and Democracy is based out of. Um, so here here in the Twin Cities and in Minneapolis, one of the um, major environmental justice issues that, that we've been fighting is um, a, a power plant, a, a power generating facility, a waste incineration facility actually in North Minneapolis, which is home to Uh, Black and brown communities, uh, which um, suffers from a lot of economic and social vulnerabilities. And to that, you add uh, a power generation facility that adds pollution burden, uh, extreme levels of pollution burden in the neighborhood. And these are the same communities that the North Minneapolis community is the same community that is on the front lines of climate change. Um, And and as we all know, the the U.S. power sector is a major driver of of climate change. Almost 25% of greenhouse gas emissions Mm -hmm. come from from the power sector. Um, And so, you know, as as EJ advocates, what we've been really calling for is a rapid decarbonization of the power sector, a move away from fossil fuel infrastructure, um, a transition to a truly pollution-free, reliable, and just power sector. And so, so what's, what's really important to remember here is that with technologies such as carbon capture, um, and sequestration and hydrogen co firing in power plants, there's really no end in sight for fossil fuel infrastructure, coal plants and gas plants can just continue operating if they install carbon capture technologies, um, or if they co fire their power plants, with, with hydrogen. And, you know, as, as Um, Dr. Baptista um, had been elaborating, there are uh, multiple potential public health risks, environmental risks, public safety risks uh, associated with these technologies. Um, We don't even know the full extent of the environmental dangers associated
1: with it. Well said, Ancha. We've got to take a quick commercial break. I'll let you finish that thought when we come back. Uh, But don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
0: Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26 percent, 43 percent or 14 percent?
4: self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot
3: topics.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Um, today, we're talking about the, an, a new rule proposed by the EPA that would allow carbon capture and sequestration and hydrogen co-firing at existing power plants. And the concern that we have, and we have a, an all-star panel on to talk with us about this, is how is that going to impact environmental justice communities that are already over. Burdened With the pollution from power plants, adding some of the co pollutants um, and, and a- added energy requirements to do these technologies uh, may harm these communities even more. And we're going to unpack this question that we pose at the beginning. Is this technology racist is this policy that allows uh, these technologies to go into power plants and environmental justice communities racist so we're going to let ansha Zaman finish her thought i asked her before the break who benefits and who is harmed by carbon capture and sequestration and hydrogen co-firing so Ansha, unmute yourself and talk to us about that answer
5: yeah, thank you, Jill. Uh, as I was as I was saying that we, we don't even know the full extent of the environmental and public health dangers associated with large scale large large scale deployment of these technologies, and the mm-hmm. communities that will be that will be harmed by such deployment will be communities. So we don't that know near, who would apartment. be harmed, or but who benefits, Ansha? Who benefits from this? I think that's also such an important question. It's that these methods of decarbonizing our power sector it's really a fossil fuel industry destruction gotcha so it's just a method of keeping these infrastructures alive finding another lifeline for this industry and, and so you know the it's the fossil fuel interests that stand to gotcha. benefit at the cost gotcha. of uh, of burdening already overburdened communities with these uh, environmental and public health risks. Thank you for that,
1: Doctor Sheets. Help us understand exactly what the EPA is proposing for greenhouse gas standards and guidelines for fossil fuel-fired power plants.
2: Well, what they're proposing, and most important from the EJ point of view, well, not only the EJ communities but all communities, is the rule really promotes the use of CCS and, and hydrogen uh, uh, combustion to lower emissions of carbon dioxide. From uh, power plants. So, what it does is it sets uh, carbon dioxide reduction standards and goals using these two methodologies. And from an EJ perspective, uh, the problem with this is that both of these met- methodologies have potential harm communities, uh, which we'll get in more detail later. I'll just mention one of the problems I think we mentioned already is that they have to potentially increase coal pollutants uh, emissions mm-hmm. in all communities, but especially troubling in, as you said, Jill, uh, overburden vulnerable EJ communities, which is exactly what we don't want to do right? No. From, a, from a justice perspective. Uh, so that's the essence of the rule. I should also mention that even though the standards are set using these two methodologies, Um, states have to implement the rule, and states can implement the rule in such a way that these methodologies are not used to meet the standards, which is what we're advocating. But our fear is that because these methodologies have been used to set the standards, that they'll also be used to meet the standards, and that poses a problem for communities everywhere, but also for for EJ communities, but especially for EJ communities.
1: Absolutely. Well said. Thanks, Dr. Sheets. Dr. Baptista, to you. What's your position on the EPA's proposed guidelines?
3: Well, um, our joint comments to the EPA stated clearly that we did not support um, the approach that the EPA proposed in setting these guidelines using CCS and hydrogen. Um, So uh, we don't believe that um, these rules will in fact reach not only the climate mitigation goals that it's setting out, but even if you believe that um, the climate mitigation goals that the proposed rule attempts to meet um, might happen, we still believe that the rule fails to consider environmental justice and the impacts um, that will be felt disproportionately by uh, communities that are already overburdened and disadvantaged. So, um, you know, for that reason, we were really hard pressed um, to find in this rule, even, consideration um, of the risks borne by communities. There was very little or, or, you know, scant attention paid to environmental justice in the proposed rules. Uh, there was no environmental justice analysis or cumulative impacts analysis conducted as part of the rule. Um, and so for that reason, uh, many of us joined together uh, to point out um, these uh, deficiencies in the rule and, um, You know, we were hoping to see a much more uh, straightforward and and, uh, aggressive approach to transition away from the fossil fuel um, industries um, and not just reduce CO2, but reduce all of the harmful uh, pollutants and emissions that come from the power sector.
1: Absolutely. Ms. lopez nunez i'm going to bring you on how might the epa's proposed guidelines hamper the rapid transition that we need to clean energy
4: yeah absolutely it's it's really disheartening to not see a rule that just it could have been a straightforward rule with mandatory emissions reduction right we didn't have to yeah. give this sort of um handholding to the industry to say, well, you can do it using this risky technology and we're not sure if it works. And there and the EPA admits that there are risks, right? That it will increase um NOx and other co-pollutants. They, you know, practically say it. So that I think that there was a lack of environmental justice consideration. And for me, it's very much like with recycling. You know, we could have instead of doing recycling, we could have said no more plastic. And we wouldn't mm-hmm. have the massive plastic problem that we do today. Right. But instead the industry at the time, um it, lobbied us, right, as a society Mm -hmm. and said, don't worry, we can all do it personally. Every individual will change the course of the plastic industry. And so we recycled and now we find out most things are not recycled. I think we're doing the same thing with the fossil fuel industry. We're saying don't change anything. We don't have to reduce our consumption on fossil fuels. There's this, you know, magical aid that will fix it. We're not sure it's going to fix it. And I do think it's uh, extending the life of fossil fuels at a time where obviously there's deep urgency in the world for us to stop our complete dependence and addiction to fossil fuels. Well said, Maria. And you
1: know what it reminds me of? We've been doing a lot of shows on PFAS contamination lately. It would be like having ratepayers for a water agency pay to clean PFAS out of their drinking water while allowing the source pollutant to continue to contaminate the water supply, using public dollars to clean up somebody else's mess um, and and continuing to allow that cycle of contamination. Um, And I don't know, you know, I I thought your recycling uh, analogy was terrific, but that's kind of how I see it. We keep making the mess and then Uh, spending a lot of time and money to clean it up instead of just eliminating the mess.
4: Yeah, exactly. We're trusting the people that got us into this mess with uh, tremendous amounts of public dollar to get us out of it, right? They don't have an incentive to get us out of it. They just have an incentive to take the money and keep making more money. Yeah,
1: thank you for that, Maria. Um, Anshah, I want to bring you on, and I want you to help us understand, if the EPA were to center EJ communities in setting standards for carbon emissions, how would their proposal be different from what they're currently proposing? What would that look like?
5: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that question, Jill. So the approach to to decarbonizing the power sector and getting to a pollution-free power sector that, that we've been advocating for, it was briefly mentioned by Dr. Sheets and then Maria as well, it's this concept of, of mandatory emissions reductions. So what that what that means is we need to drastically eliminate not just carbon, but all forms of pollution from the power sector. But these reductions need to be prioritized and they need to happen first and foremost in the environmental justice communities, because these are the communities that have borne the burden and, and harms of of the power sector. Um, and, and the, the good news, Jill, is that such an approach um, has, to some extent, been taken at the state and local levels. Many community-based organizations and coalitions have been able to make some headway uh, with their state legislature and local elected officials on their vision for, for this uh, pollution-free power sector. And so an example that I, that I wanted to highlight is the example of, of Illinois, uh, where a broad coalition of labor and Environmental justice organizers organizers Coalesce to pass the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act in 2021. I'm not sure if you ever featured um, that legislation in your in your show, but what, while the law is not perfect, it does commit Illinois to closing down fossil fuel power plants by 2045, mm-hmm. and most importantly, it prioritizes closures of um, fossil fuel power plants in Egypt communities. It also invests in green jobs and community-owned renewable energy. So th- that's the kind of approach we've been working towards and and um, asking for from, from our elected officials at, at every level of government, because that's the kind of approach that will create real climate benefits and public health benefits. And so we really, well, uh, yeah. Go ahead. It, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, you know, at the center of it is a, is a real commitment to phasing out fossil fuel infrastructure and. And prioritizing elimination of not just carbon pollution but all all forms of pollution,
1: kind of goes to this this environmental justice principle of meaningful engagement. And I read the full uh, you know uh, report of of your comments as a collective uh, to the EPA's proposal, and it really made me wonder what this proposal would look like if that principle of meaningful engagement had been followed or if it were followed now, because it doesn't feel like the current proposal has meaningfully engaged the EJ community. And is there anybody who'd like to speak to that? Um, Dr. Sheets, perhaps, Um, you know, what would this rule look like had the EPA followed the, the principles of meaningful engagement?
2: One thing it would look like is that it would give the right of, of communities to refuse the use of CCS it would give the right to communities to re- refuse the use of CCS and hydrogen co fire on plants that exist in their communities. Uh, and, and I want to say that meaningful engagement is very important, but we also have to have substantive protections for EJ communities and meaningful engagement is probably one necessary step to gain these protections but mm-hmm. meaningful engagement in and of itself is not enough and here of course we we to us we didn't have in, enough meaningful engagement before um um before they issued the rule or at least we were not listened to enough before they uh, issued the rule and and in the proposed rule you don't find these protections for EJ communities and in fact what they say Jill is that, well, we recognize there's an issue here, but uh, uh, we will let the states uh, meaningfully engage EJ communities and, mm-hmm. and implicitly, uh, they say, come up with, with solutions. But, of course, uh, we know that, is, that the meaningful engagement um, uh, uh, may not occur, and even if it does, does not necessarily lead to protections for EJ communities.
1: Absolutely. Well said, Dr. Sheets. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more to talk about on this issue. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
0: A little birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN.
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. We are so glad that you joined us. If you just tuned in, let me catch you up. Today, we're talking about EPA's proposed new rule to allow carbon capture and sequestration and hydrogen co-firing at existing power plants in order to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. However... Um, There is substantial concern on the part of the EJ Community Advocacy Network that this could increase the burden on already overburdened communities when it comes to pollutants and health risks associated with those pollutants. Dr. Sheets, I want to go to you. I want you to talk to us about how EJ communities face the greatest risks of climate change and how the EPA's proposal could actually worsen that impact
2: yeah that's a great question um uh, and we should point out that we want to fight climate change because as we say ej communities will be harmed first first and worst by climate change in in a number of different ways that including uh added vulnerability to heat stress the heat island um, effect added air pollution to communities already have too much pollution but so we we definitely want to fight climate change but um, we don't want to harm communities as we're fighting climate change. We don't want to trade off short-term harm um, for a long-term fight um, against climate change. And that is what the rule has the potential to do in a, a, a number um, of ways, uh, you know, a number of ways that can harm EJ communities while fighting climate change. And we just talked about coal pollutants as, as one example. You know, we've been advocating reducing coal pollutants, and this actually has potential to do exactly the opposite, uh, and to have exactly the opposite effect. And one thing I always say is that, look, when we win the fight against climate change, I think we will. Um, those folks, if, if we use methods that will harm communities, especially EJ communities, those people that will may, be made sick or, God forbid, die because of the way we're fighting climate change, when we win the battle, they will not be, they will not be healed. And mm-hmm. if they're not with us any longer, they, you know, they, they, they won't pop up again. Um, they, they would be permanently damaged. So we have to use climate change mitigation policy to decrease disparities based in income and and race in our society, um, not to perpetuate or increase them, which this rule has potential to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thanks, Dr. Sheets. Dr. Baptista, you know, uh, Ansha alluded to this when we asked her, you know, who benefits from the, these two technologies that are proposed under the rule. But I'm going to ask you point blank. Is the EPA's proposal tantamount to propping up the fossil fuel industry with public funds?
3: It's certainly part of the, the whole federal incentive package. So currently, um, the fossil fuel industries are the major benefactors of the tax credits uh, that uh, were passed under the IRA um, that have been bolstered. So, you know, we're talking about two to three billion dollars just in the last few years for carbon capture and sequestration projects. Um, And most of that funding is going are going to fossil fuel industries like Occidental, Petroleum, Chevron and others. Um, So they are the main beneficiaries, without a doubt. And the EPA rule, what it essentially does by setting these standards using CCS and hydrogen co-firing are creating uh, a demand. So they're basically saying uh, this is they're going to drive power plants um, to say, this is what we need to install. We have the tax credits in place that can help um, fuel that installation. So um, you've got the the perfect mix for propping up the fossil fuel industry and extending the life of many of these plants who might otherwise have to shut down or transition um, at, at a time when we should be spending billions of dollars to build out um, and strengthen solar and wind and other renewable energy systems, we're going towards more funding in the same fossil fuel industries and in the same infrastructures. Um, So, you know, they're talking about something like $30 billion going forward for carbon capture and sequestration projects that will continue to do enhanced oil recovery with carbon capture. So not only are we giving these companies money to continue, but to continue to pump more oil out of the ground um, and drive us further into climate um, change. So it's uh, a very harrowing picture that that this rule is um, part of. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that.
1: Ms. Lopez-Nunez, I want to bring you back on, and I want you to make this human for us. We've talked about EJ communities, and everybody knows that it's made up of human beings. But I want you to describe to us, you know, if the use of CCS and hydrogen co-firing increase power plant co-pollutant emissions in your neighborhood, the ironbound community of Newark, New Jersey, help us understand the human implications. Talk to us about that.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I. You know, one of my favorite parts actually about my work that I don't get to talk about as much is uh, there's a Saturday program of gardening, right? There's gardening Mm -hmm. um, because our neighborhood's mostly concrete and we're surrounded by industry. I can't stress to to the listeners enough the impact that this has on a child, right? A child that's growing up in a neighborhood that has no trees already, that when they look up, they're more likely to see a power plant or a smokestack than they are a tree or vegetables in our neighborhood. There's no parks, right? There's very limited... Uh, green space, we flood very easily. There is a psychological impact on that, and then most of the kids, they they either have asthma or they know someone that has asthma. It's just something that you know plagues our whole community of people impacted by respiratory disease. We, and respiratory disease is not the only thing. You know, there's people. We've had kids who have had rare cancers at an early age who know many people in their families who have died from cancer or suffering. So. I don't think that that can be underestimated of what it's like to grow up in that environment and what you then think and feel for yourself and then you see a society trying to push really hard against the mess that we got ourselves into right like we empowered Mm -hmm. the fossil fuel industry and all bought in and then what is the solution to give them more money right to give them more ability to continue polluting in our neighborhoods it's really on top of the health impact it's just psychologically devastating that this is our moonshot this is the way that we're going to try um to change the world. It's not changing the world for the fourth, you know, the fourth and fifth graders in my neighborhood. They still look up. They see more smoke every day. Yeah,
1: I I really wish that when uh, adults were gathered in a room making these kinds of public policy proposals, that they were doing it in an elementary classroom where all the kids have asthma, just the sound alone of all the kids coughing. I, I mean, for people who've never experienced that, ask a teacher in an environmental justice community what it is like to try and carry on your day with children coughing and gagging and not being able to catch their breath, partly because the outdoor air pollution makes its way to indoor air pollution, and EPA has been telling us for decades that can be many, many times worse for our health than even outdoor air quality. And so, you know, I I really wish that we were making these kinds of public policy decisions in a space where we could see the, the human ramifications of our decisions, but I I digress. <laughs> um, Ansha, I want to bring you on because, you know, if we were going to imagine a truly just uh, power sector in our country, in, you know, what, what a lot of people have, have said is the greatest country in human history, what would a truly just power sector look like?
5: Yeah, I really like that question because it's a it's a question we often ask ourselves, and it's a question we ask um, during work workshops and trainings that we do um, with with community members. So at Seed, we a huge part of our work is popular education, and so we do popular education workshops, and we collaborate with neighborhood associations to put together these really hyper local community building sessions where folks in a neighborhood come together, enjoy food, um, mingle. And they also learn about, uh, the energy system. And And we often play games, um, uh, in these workshops. And and, 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 one of these workshops, we, we ask participants to draw out their vision for a just par power system. And what's revealing is that in almost all iterations of this exercise, community members will draw solar gardens and corporative, corporatively owned um, energy systems. They'll draw thriving, toxic-free neighborhoods, so good air quality, clean air, clean water. Um, and most often, the the element that comes up will almost always come up is, is good jobs and community wealth. And so I think that that exercise also grounds our advocacy and, and what we ask for when we meet with elected officials is we, really, we need energy systems that meet our everyday energy needs. So electricity that is reliable and affordable and can withstand the challenges of this new climate reality that we're in um, and an energy system that also creates public health benefits and not public health harms um, and also creates new economic opportunities. First and foremost, for communities who have been underinvested in,
1: I love that Ansha. And you know, we talk about this sometimes um, when low-income communities uh, are able to, through a variety of programs, install solar energy. By definition, uh, the jobs associated with that are domestic jobs, local jobs, um, and, and so you know, there, there's this. Um, independence and democratization of energy um, when the source of energy is by definition local, like uh, mm-hmm. solar. Um, and so I love that. I, I want to give Maria a chance to come back on and and give in in the last minute that we have in this segment, your thoughts about what a just power sector would look like. Maria, your thoughts on that?
4: I mean, a just power sector would be a a sector that's owned by the people, right? It's owned by the communities that it impacts. If we use our energy, um, we should be able to create and have ownership of that energy. It would be a beautiful thing to see solar panels everywhere, wind. And of course, we need battery storage to make up for the times when it's not blowing, but it can happen. I believe that, too. Thank you for
1: that, Maria. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, there's more Go Green Radio right after this.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess, how much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voice
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We're going to get right to it. Uh, This topic is hot. Dr. Sheets, I want to go to you. We've talked about some of the co-pollutants that may be generated uh, in communities where the existing... Power plants may institute CCS and hydrogen co-fire technologies. But in addition to increased pollution, I want you to talk to us about the additional environmental safety and regulatory risks for already vulnerable EJ communities that the EPA's proposal could bring about.
2: Yes, Jill, there are. are, And we have uh, folks on co pollutants because we've been working on that for a long time. But um, we've mentioned some of the other other risks. Uh, pipeline uh, leaks risk, and Maria talked about that. And there's going to be a lot more pipelines connected to both uh, CCS and hydrogen and combustion underground storage leaks, which I think Dr. Bautista talked about. You got you know, if you restore, if you store this carbon dioxide underground somewhere, will it leak? Will it move? Um, one thing we haven't talked about is the production of green hydrogen, which will be u- used for combustion or is proposed to be used for combustion, uh, can use a lot of water. And in areas that have water scarcity, it can exacerbate that. So, what the rule does is it puts a lot more risk in communities, the co pollutants, all the things I just said, uh, risk of failure of the regulatory system to conduct meaningful participation and to control additional um, additional emissions, all these risks uh, uh, are being added um, by this rule and um, it will be disproportionately added to communities, EJ communities, overburdened communities that already have more than their fair share of risk. And we've been talking about what a fair uh, system, en- energy system would look like, uh, Jill. And I think, I hope we've conveyed that we all wanna fight climate change. And really our critique is that the administration is not going far enough we need to have the rapid transition that you talked about Jill and all and and my colleagues have talked about to energy efficiency and renewable energy and what this rule does is it really tampers around the edges right it's just it's, mm-hmm. it, it just is trying to change the the edges the margins of our energy system, and we have to have a more fundamental change in the energy system as long as we tamper around the edges and just slap some added technology on. Um, and keep the current system intact, I think it's still going to put more of the risk, most of the risk on EJ communities, because after all, it's the current system that caused environmental injustice in the first place. Mm-hmm. So we need a more fundamental change, and we need a more basic change, and we need to do more about climate change, not less. This doesn't do, um, attack the problem sufficiently in a fundamental way. Uh, I agree.
1: I I mean, just from a very simplistic point of view, I look at all the pipelines and other infrastructure that would need to go in to make this work. And I think, what in the world are we thinking creating infrastructure that we know is going to be finite in its use instead of putting all of that money and all those jobs to work on clean energy? why in the world are we, are we going backwards um, with what we need to build to make this work instead of forward? Uh, it just makes no sense to me.
2: No, Jill, Maria talked about the moonshot. We need the yes. moonshot in our system. She's, she's right. definitely she's hit it on, on the head. That's right.
1: Dr. Baptista, talk to us about the risks and uncertainty involved in state compliance with the EPA's proposal.
3: Yeah, the states have a great deal of discretion and flexibility in um, implementing the, the rule as it's laid out currently. And the problem, one of the biggest problems with that is currently neither the federal government nor states have strong protections for environmental justice communities in the form of, for example, cumulative impacts laws that allow communities to be protected on the basis of cumulative impacts. New Jersey and New York, for example, are two of the the rare states that actually have recently passed laws around cumulative impacts. Um, But most states have no protections or no added protections for um, environmental justice communities. And the current law delegates a lot of authority to states. And um, in that delegation, Uh, Unfortunately, many of the risks that Dr. Sheets just talked about, um, it's unclear what the regulatory pathway or oversight, what are the governance systems that are going to ensure that those risks um, are addressed uh, effectively, so it's not clear who's going to oversee pipeline risks. Will there be permits required for CCS? What kinds of permits? Will communities be able to talk about the co-pollutants that affect them or water contamination um, or threats of explosion? So there's so much complexity in the jurisdiction of who is going to oversee these things. um, And it's not clear right now um, who's going to be really ultimately responsible for the governance and oversight of these systems and who will end up bearing all the risks, which will probably be the EJ communities at the end of the day, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. And, and if we've learned nothing about what, you know, what, what can happen at the state level recently, it's that uh, there can be some very inequitable outcomes for Americans in Various states.
3: Yes. yes. We have lots of examples. We have many examples of that, right? Yes, we do.
1: That's right. Maria, I want to bring you back on. In your estimation, is the environmental justice analysis in the EPA's proposal
4: sufficient? I have a short answer. There is no environmental justice analysis in the EPA Mm -hmm. um, rule, and that's just so disheartening. There's no mention of cumulative impacts and the risk that we're already exposed to, the combination of those risks. Yeah, there is no aging analysis. They need to go much, much further if they're going to actually prioritize our communities. Well,
1: and the thing is, Maria, I mean, and I know that you'll agree, but I mean, uh There's been a lot of talk on the part of the Biden administration and the new EPA, you know, uh, chief on, you know, when it comes to frontline communities and EJ communities. Um, And it, it doesn't even feel like this proposal follows some of the executive orders that have been put in place lately about how to make sure that we're considering frontline
4: communities. Absolutely. They're talking the talk. I need them to walk the walk. We need them to. We don't have time. That's right. Thank you, Maria. Um, Ancha,
1: I want to bring you on. The, the solution EPA consistently offers in the proposed rule to potentially in, increases in co-pollutant emissions due to the use of CCS and hydrogen co-firing is existing regulations. That's our solution. We've got existing regulations. Have these regulations, have they ever sufficiently protected EJ communities from pollution?
5: Yeah I, th- I think that's right if you read the the proposed rule um EPA does you know acknowledge increases in coupled emissions but they quickly as soon as they acknowledge they acknowledge it, they quickly point to well we have these existing regulations that will sufficiently protect whatever emissions increases happen um but the but the reality is current regulations don't don't sufficiently protect EJ communities a because either they're not sufficiently enforced, or B, some of these standards uh, have not been updated for for some time. The NOx standards um, that we have in this country have not been reviewed in 16 years. Mm. And so this is at the very crux of our our concern, that the current regulatory environment is not sufficient to protect Egypt communities from from the myriad of risks that these technologies pose. You know, and and we've reiterated this throughout throughout this conversation, but Mm -hmm. there are air quality concerns associated with these technologies. There are environmental public health, public safety risks associated with transporting and storing carbon dioxide Mm -hmm. once it's been captured. Um, But currently there are there are no federal environmental regulations specifically governing CCS projects.
1: Well said, Ansha. Thank you so much. I want to thank all of our guests for being with us today. Um, Whether or not we answered the initial question for you, um, I hope that we were able to give you some new and interesting uh, viewpoints on the EPA's new rule and to to really think about um, the human impact of these uh, public policy proposals. I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today. And we're going to be here same time. Same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.